So, welcome. <laughs> welcome. We're, we've been live for a few minutes. But to welcome. my humble abode. Yes. No, welcome to my humble abode. Exactly. Welcome into the life of Olivia. The land of knowledge and, oh, and understanding. Welcome, Thomas. Hello. Hello, the pool's <laughs> over here. Make yourself comfortable. The library's small. <laughs> the hot tub's over to the right. <laughs> The sauna is broken. The margaritas are just at the bar, as you can tell, right in front of you over over in the corner over there. We're actually podcasting straight from the hot tub, so I mean. <laughs> Make yourself at home. <laughs> the servant got fired for negligence. Um, we'll get a new one soon. That's fine. I mean, I could just get a... I could... I have people knocking on my door every day to want to please, serve please. a vote of Olivia. Let me serve you. Please. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, technical difficulties beyond our control are delaying our presentation. And now good morning to everyone in my night audience. Dave operates on a frequency of 1,460 Oh, man. So, well, okay. I heard you did a lot of reading. So, welcome. Yeah. I did. Yes. But before I did a lot of reading, mm-hmm. I want to just welcome you to our wonderful podcast. Well, actually, I'm welcoming not you, but the people who are listening to us to Dried Ink, the place, essentially our mini study guide for the week. Mm-hmm. We go to school, we do research, then we come here <laughs> and we talk about it. You're so excited. <laughs> So excited. Until our teachers find out about this. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I was actually thinking about that. I was like, ooh, I wonder. I wonder if I could, like, complete. I'll just quote my professor. I'll be like, so this is what Professor So-and-so said this week. (laughs) Please don't sue me. (laughs) If I'm wrong, he's full of shit. Go after him. There you go. It's it's, it's insurance. Insurance. Cite your sources. My goddamn professor is my source. Exactly. That is all my source so so i did do a lot of reading thank you for mentioning what did you do a (laughs) lot of reading um ah i did a lot of reading on my favorite time in history which is essentially when standardized spelling wasn't a thing when shakespeare was writing sonnets and the tutors were full of scandals (laughs) the wonderful period of the elizabethans Uh when queen elizabeth was on the throne so, at the time, mm-hmm. as you may know already, Queen Elizabeth was on the throne and bringing back Protestantism with a bang. So, just before Elizabeth actually took the throne, though, a lovely man who went by the name of Martin Luther spearheaded the Protestant Reformation, which, amongst other things, proclaimed that sexual desire between men and women was natural and part of our nature. <gasps> That sex in itself was a gift from God. But, and there's always a but, only as long as it was kept within the sanctity of marriage. So, essentially, before Martin Luther... sounds blasphemous coming from a Catholic. Oh, right. This is exactly, exactly where I'm going. Thank you for introducing this. (laughs) So, essentially, before Martin Luther... The Catholics were all like, oh no, sex is bad, and any desire is of utmost sin. Even when you're married, it's such a shame that we have to bang to reproduce. (laughs) And actually, so (laughs) talking about that, I read this story two semesters ago about this French lady from the Merovingian period, which is in the Middle Ages, whose name was Monogundis. And like, 
could we take a second to appreciate how wild medieval French names were? Because, like, Monagundus, Clovis, Batilde, Radigand, Venantius. Anyways, I am running away from my point, but (laughs) Monagundus was this super extremely holy lady who wore horsehair jackets under her clothes. Have you ever seen a horsehair jacket? These things are wild. They're like, they're essentially like vests made of horsehair that you wear underneath your clothes and they like itch you and scratch you and they make you bleed. Mm. And people would essentially wear those to, um, uh, like as a essentially to remind themselves that they're sinful people oh. and they need to feel pain because Jesus felt pain. That's like the people that whip their thing, backs, right? right? I mean, there's, there's those people. Precisely. And like she also slept on the floor. And I mean, this was a period of time when there was still dirt floors. <laughs> she slept on the floor when she had a perfectly good bed with her husband. But, you know, she decided, no, 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 I'm sleeping on the floor on a wooden mat. Um, and then, okay, so this lady, you get an image of what she's like, right? So at one point, so she had sex with her husband because they had to have a baby, obviously, because, you know, this is the thing. And then after she did the deed, she just like straight up waltzed over to the latrine and slept on the floor facing the chamber pots all night long because she was like, I am full of sin. (laughs) So like, gives you an idea. Catholic piety was special. Which is why Martin Luther's Reformation was such a crazy thing to so many people, right? So, as you mentioned, going forward to Elizabethan times, so the Tudor period, um, people got sick a lot, obviously, especially from smallpox. And if you survived, you ended up being left with all these smallpox scars, which you've seen what smallpox, smallpox, my gosh, I can't speak. You've seen what smallpox scars look like, Random side note, Joseph Stalin had smallpox and he had smallpox scars and so did George Washington. Oh, I didn't know about George Washington. I knew about Joseph Stalin. George Washington had smallpox. Okay, back to you. It was common enough to essentially coin the term pockmarked. So many, many of people had many, many pockmarks. So these scars are discolored craters everywhere, like in your skin. And Queen Elizabeth also had pockmarks all over her face, all over her chest. And as did many other fancy women of the court who had the adequate nursing to be able to survive the virus. Because a lot of peasants who caught smallpox, they would essentially die because they were weak and they didn't have enough strength to actually fight the virus because of the fact that they were like malnourished and they were in the elements and they didn't really have the infrastructure to allow them to survive the smallpox, Mm -hmm. whereas rich people and the aristocracy did. So ironically, at the time, blemishes and any marks on your skin were also seen to be proof that you had inappropriate thoughts and sexual fantasies, like, for example, premarital sexual fantasies that even sexually liberated Martin Luther said was a no-no. So now imagine all of these like single ladies walking around court trying to find themselves a man to marry, um, but they have all these marks on their skin, which apparently meant they weren't pure and virginal enough for marriage. The horror, right? <laughs> like, how could, what are you supposed to do? Like, you are a single lady. God forbid you become a spinster. So what do you do when your skin isn't looking too hot and you don't look enough like a freshly birthed lamb? Well, you wear makeup. So amongst this makeup, and you can probably imagine what was the main ingredient in half of these makeups, 
I will let you guess. It is a heavy metal, multiple heavy metals that starts with an L. <laughs> lead. Yeah. yeah, lead. Yeah, 10 so points to me. You have white lead, <laughs> I suppose. That's not what Dumbledore would have wanted. I don't wanted care then. what Dumbledore so you have okay so you have white lead that's mixed with vinegar and that was called venetian ceruse and venetian ceruse was actually a very common one for the queen and her court ladies who primarily use this to whiten their skin and to make them look youthful because obviously if you're an aristocrat you don't go outside and you don't do manual labor and therefore you don't get a tan so you want to look as white as humanly possible additionally um, when you have all this white ceruse on it's a relatively thick paste so it covers your pockmark mark scars and the discoloration pretty well attracting all the men of court to say wow what a beautiful pure virginal lady and like it's not like people didn't know that lead was damaging their skin because in nine in 1950 in 1519 william horman who was a headmaster at eton and winchester college wrote, um, and I quote, the ceruse or white lead which women use to better their complexion is made of lead and vinegar, which mixture is naturally a great dryer and is used by chirurgeons to dry, instead of with a Y, D-R-I-E, to moist sores, moist with an E, as I mentioned before, no standardized spelling, my absolute favorite, <laughs> so that those women who use it about their faces do quickly become withered and gray-headed because this doubt so mightily dry up the natural moisture of their flesh. So obviously they knew at this period of time that putting this lead-based makeup on their face dries their skin out, makes them turn gray, makes them look really ugly essentially without the makeup on. And another thing, like, amongst all of these other makeups as well, were um, egg whites. So I actually got all of the information that I'm about to say from the book, The Royal Art of Poison, which I actually ordered because I started reading it online and I was like, whoa, this is wild. Poison was such a big part of history in general. So anyways, so Elizabethan or Tudor, I'm sorry, <laughs> women, they also used egg whites on their skin to make them look essentially glazed, so like a donut. Um, some women used dried up ox dung to get rid of pimples. Mm. So like imagine you take up a little piece of ox poop, you put it in your little mortar and pestle, grind it up and pop it on a pimple overnight and bam, <laughs> it's gone. Um, they washed their faces with animal urine, which thought to tighten up their skin. Um, some women filled their pockmarks with human fat that they either got from the apothecary or from the executioner. You can take your pick. Um, there were also mercury face masks that were left on for a week at a time, and then they would take it off, and underneath your skin was super soft and wonderful, which, I mean, yeah, because, like, you just burnt off a layer of your skin. To prevent lice, they mixed mercury, butter, and arsenic, and then they put it on their scalps, armpits, and um, anywhere else that you can imagine lice can grow. I'll leave that up to your imagination. They also use belladonna drops. So do you know what belladonna is? No. Who's belladonna? So belladonna is this plant that dilates your pupils, and apparently I was reading that they actually still use belladonna in eye drops today, dilate your pupils. 
Um, so as you can imagine, Belladonna, Bella Donna is beautiful woman. They use this to dilate their pupils so that they could look all beautiful and doe-eyed. And these are actually toxic drops to use on a daily basis. You shouldn't be ingesting these things because it's it's not good for you. It's not fatal, but it's also not great for your health. And imagine like when you go to the eye doctor and they dilate your pupils, they're like, maybe don't operate heavy machinery afterwards i mean imagine these women who are putting belladonna drops in their eyes every day how little they must see just on a daily basis their red cheeks and their lips were used with cinnabar so cinnabar is a sort of red mercury rock um, that was crushed up and used that's actually where the pigment vermilion i don't know if you've ever seen paints that are called vermilion that's where the pigment originally came from Coal sticks were used as eyeliners and eyebrow pencils, and they were made from lead sulfide. Now, there are also coal eyeliners, but they're made from charcoal, so no need to worry there. So, all of this because beauty is pain, but, I mean, men actually made fun of women back then, saying that they had so much makeup on that they could cut the makeup off like cheese curds. And, like, Shakespeare even wrote a sonnet making fun of beauty standards. Would you like to hear it? I'd like it? to hear it. Let's hear this. This oh, is going right. to be a hoot. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more fair than her lips fair. If snow be white, why then her breast is dun? P.S. Dun means brownish gray. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go, my mistress, when she walks, tread on the ground, and yet by heaven I think my love as rare, as she belied with false compare. So, like, this sonnet is essentially Shakespeare saying that his lady um, doesn't have super white skin she has her lips aren't the color of coral her she when she walks on the ground she sounds like an elephant and um she doesn't smell very good um what else her voice isn't very pleasant but he still loves her despite all these things and he loves her more than someone who may actually have all of these classic beauty standards right so these beauty standards at the time were seemingly all to follow this one very specific purpose of looking beautiful and pure, to find a man who you can marry so that property can be shared around and family alliances could be formed, right? But the peasant women, albeit they didn't have property and alliances to form, um, they weren't getting all dressed up and dolled up, yet were still getting married. So, like, what's the deal? Like, why did these aristocratic women feel like they needed to take that extra step in looking all white and pale and essentially poisoning them and the processes when the men that they felt like they were impressing at the time or under the pretext of, oh, I'm wearing this because I need to be beautiful so that I can get married, when the men didn't even like that that much. So... 
what do you think? Because I have my two cents on the matter, but I'm curious to know, especially like in this period of time. It's the same as today though, isn't it? I, yeah, most men do not like, most men such as myself do not like caked on makeup, things like that, but these women still do it. So Mm -hmm. why do you do it? (laughs) I still don't know why you do it. I mean, now there's this whole movement pushing towards the I don't wear makeup to impress anybody. I wear makeup for myself. I wear makeup as artistic expression. Mm -hmm. But that's a very modern, contemporary thought process. So this is only something that I started hearing coming from women when... Um, the most recent feminist movement started happening. So when it was essentially all this hatred towards men, all of this, I am not existing to impress you, all of, you know, that kind of feminist thinking and movement. Um, But because we can't think about history and the past as something that is also in the present we have to kind of take this elizabethan mentality as it is in that period of time and even in the 60s it was different i mean if you looked around i mean there was so much pressure on women to be good homemakers good mothers good wives just everything the woman had to be perfect and in doing so she had to maintain an image so was this image necessarily to show other men that her husband married someone good or was it to show other women that she was at the standard so is it is wearing makeup in that time period where a competition between women of the court I mean, if all the women were wearing white face makeup and one woman wasn't, would she be singled out? Would she be seen as inferior? Would she be seen as, oh, she can't afford looking white and beautiful and things like that and therefore peer pressure? Well, one thing you didn't mention, which is important, is the white makeup was also a sign of purity in a way. To show the sign Mm -hmm. of, I am God's child, essentially. That's why Elizabeth wore mm-hmm. so much of it, not just because of the smallpox, but because to show her virginity, her virtue, and her mm-hmm. marriage to England. So, another thing mm-hmm. I want to mention as well is you said, uh, you know how it ruined your skin, it made you look terrible. Yeah. yeah. So, do you know what the solution to that was? Adding more add makeup. more makeup. Oh no, my face is falling off. Let's add more makeup. <laughs> that's pretty much, <laughs> that's, yeah. But And making it just worse exactly. and worse and worse. But Something you mentioned, too, I've never considered it before, is I think women do wear makeup for other women. Because when you put your makeup on, who do you turn to for validation to see if it's good or not? Is other Another woman. Another woman. Exactly. Yep. Like, men, some men, sure, I can't say all men, but most men I know don't really care about makeup. I mean, mm-hmm. you put a lot of effort into it. It's like, you don't need to do that. You know? I think also, though... It's one of those things like if makeup is done well, I will hear men make the comment of at least men who aren't complete dicks. (laughs) They'll be like, oh, that looks really nice on you. Or they'll make they'll notice that you are wearing makeup and they'll notice that it looks nice. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is when the men are like, why aren't you wearing makeup? You look sick. What's going (laughs) on? Awful. But I think that's a masculinity issue. That's an issue with the man. 
But I think you're right. Like a lot of the times women will turn to other women for validation of like, oh, do you like my makeup? Look what I did. Because they know that the other women are also taking part in this makeup culture Mm -hmm. of this. I put just as much effort in my makeup as she put in her makeup. And so I want to ask her if I did it well or I want to show her how much effort I put because she can empathize with me. But now... It's one thing if you enjoy wearing this makeup. It's one thing if you are happy in doing so. It's another thing if you're completely peer pressured into it. Could be. It could also just be trendy as well, do you think? Mm -hmm. That is very true. Trends happened Mm -hmm. back then. Because, I mean, the queen was wearing the exact makeup that all the women of of court were wearing. Mm -hmm. So it's very possible that they saw the queen wearing the makeup and seeing how she was wearing her makeup to be pure, to be virginal, to show. And I mean, like I mentioned before, how blemishes were seen as impurities. Well, imagine the queen, the virgin queen, having all these blemishes on her face. And now suddenly, well, she must be having tons of lewd thoughts if she has all those blemishes, right? So when you're wearing this this coat of makeup, you're trying to hide essentially from misconceptions, yeah. if that makes mm. sense. So it's like, well, no, I'm not thinking lewd thoughts. How is that possible? Let me put makeup on so that people don't think that I am having like I'm sexual desires and I am impure and I'm not virginal and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because if you were, well, you weren't seen as a very solid human being. And especially as a woman, uh, your life depends on whether you get married or not and who you get married to and who you have alliances with so if you're not wearing the adequate makeup and you're not looking as virginal and pure as humanly possible well good luck to you my lady right good luck. Uh. so yeah it's it's an interesting thing to think about and i think it can be looked into in more depth mm-hmm. but i think we probably covered a good solid portion of it mm-hmm. side note the good. french males used to wear yeah. makeup as well during the 18th century yeah in the 18th century well the nobility used to wear makeup mostly they liked they liked rosy you red cheeks so they used to paint themselves in white uh-huh. with rosy red cheeks you know powder yeah. yeah did you do you know why i do not know why was it the same idea of uh, that is something i could look <laughs> up because then we could do comparative comparative studies on the matter well listen if in france they were doing this but also albeit it's in a different time period so and it's the french but we could see trends we could see um and it is the french the french are we, it's not something we go oh what the french it's like oh yeah okay the french <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah. duh it, that that's basically sense. it i mean oh yeah they invented a whole bunch of stuff they actually what was i watching i was watching the show where ooh, okay not the most historically accurate but outlander where claire the main character she goes to france right and then this mistress tells her ooh, i waxed my legs ooh, i waxed my hair oh, off and then it was like this whole it was this whole thing so to put a beautiful end to my topic we can just say the french <laughs> Ah, yes. Ah, yes. The French. (laughs) They're trends. They were the fashion people of Europe. Oh, they were. They definitely were. I think they, um, a lot of the big ball gowns, a lot of the big fashions, they came straight out of France. Oh, Oh, definitely. And then the Italians adopted them. (laughs) And 
et cetera, et cetera. On that note. On that note. What did you do a lot of reading? What did I do a lot of reading about? Well, my topic is considerably different than your topic and considerably more depressing. Hooray. (laughs) That's okay. We'll end this podcast on a very depressing note, (laughs) as we all love. (laughs) (laughs) Can't go to bed happy. Yeah, we're going to go to bed scarred. Thanks, guys. Oh, yes. We are talking about the First World War. And I think we can all agree that the First World War was perhaps the most horrific war for the average soldier to have ever fought. It was carnage. Oh, yes. Absolute carnage. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we all know about trench... We can agree. Yeah, I'm sure we all know about trench warfare at this point. But I'd like to clear up a few misconceptions first before we continue. Just... I just want to get these out of the way. Yeah. I feel like people don't know really know these, all right? So... Mm-mm. It only really happened in the Western Front. There were few trenches in the Eastern Front, but nothing, nothing to the extent of the West. Because when people think World War One, they think trenches, right? It's not. It's a global. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Like, a good example is the United States. Their first shot ever fired was in Guam. That's, yeah, that's way the other side. You know, the Japanese fought the Germans. The Japanese were part of the Allies, the Entente. Damn. Yeah, and they took some islands from Germany. So it was a global war. And so... Mm -hmm. Hence, world war. So, trenches, Western Front. Another misconception is it wasn't just one long trench, right? It was a set of three Mm -hmm. trenches. So you got the rear trench, which was for reserve soldiers, right? You got the middle trench, which was Mm -hmm. for uh, support, for food, munitions, and other day-to-day things. And it was also designed to hold back the enemy if they ever breached the front trench, right? Mm -hmm. And the front trench, the Friar Trench, also known as the front line, is where the majority of deaths took place in the entire war. It's probably the most frightening place on Earth, apart from No Man's Land, which was right in front of it. Oh, yes. So, hold on a second. No Man's Land was actually the space between front line trench of you and front line trench of your enemy. Yes, Correct. it's between okay. you and the enemy. Literally why it's called No Man's Perfect. Land, because nobody owns it. Oh, it's literally never thought contested. of that. Okay. Yeah. There you go. So mer- third misconception is you didn't spend all your time in the trenches, right? You had rotations. So you would spend an average of a week in each line. You would spend a week in the front, you would mm-hmm. spend a week in the center, a week in reserve, and you get a few days behind the line where you can go visit brothels if you really want to. Uh, fun fact, syphilis was a huge problem in the French army. Huge problem. And you would get 10 to 14 days a year to go home to visit your family. Most people don't know that. That's you'd, not you'd, a lot. No, but it's something. It's more than what people thought. People thought you'd go sit in the front mm-hmm. line for four years. You don't. You're only there for a week mm-hmm. at a time. Except for one Welsh battalion that was there for 50 odd days. And that was not a oh, good wow. time. Yeah, it was not a good time for them. Mm. So, imagine this. You're in the front line having a chat with your buddies. You saw your friend got shot that morning, and you're feeling a bit down about it. You get up, you go do something quick, you come back, and all your buddies are dead. A shell landed right where they were. If you waited 30 more seconds, you would have gone with them. That would would mess you up, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. This was reality for soldiers for four years. This was your reality. Is any moment you're gone. Any moment a shell could hit you, 
You poke your head up over No Man's Land for a fraction of a second, you're gone. That's it. So, seven days, knowing you're going to die, it can be stressful for you. Especially when you're told, hey, you're going to the front line for seven days. Let alone 50 days. Mm-hmm. Ah, a good example of the carnage, if you really want, this is the depressing part, is by the end of the war, nine million men had enlisted in France. Nine million. Of those nine million, 70% were casualties. And of those 70%, half, uh, one and a half million men died. So you had a 30% chance of making it out of the war fine, not being wounded. That's not a lot. That's not a lot at all. And, oh, it was face wounds, arm wounds. You get your arm blown off, get your leg blown off. Not good times. Yeah. So it was an industrial war. This kind of war had never been done before. It's It kind of did between Japan and Russia about 10 years prior, but nothing, nothing this huge, nothing this big. So when men started coming back from the front lines, they were having strange symptoms. They were shaking. They were blind. They had amnesia. They were deaf. They were stammering and they had full-blown nervous breakdowns. But none of these men had any physical wounds. At first, these men were considered cowards and they were just put on trial. Some of them were shot. However, more and more of these men started appearing and the army saw it less and less as cowardice. They still saw it as cowardice. But doctors kept insisting, no, this is something else. This is completely different. But distress is not new. Distress has been around since the beginning of war itself. Knights in shining armor, lovely knights, would scream in terror at the sound of two pieces of metal hitting each other. During the American Civil War, it was called Soldier's Heart. But nothing came close to the First World War, which was shell shock, which was caused by artillery. Shelling is the term used for bombardment from the artillery. Every soldier who had been in the war had experienced it at least once. They had at least seen it, an explosion. And it was almost constant. It was one there, it's one there, it's one there. Sometimes it was rapid. It was all the time. But pop, 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 pop. You could always hear it. And so, shell shock. It was believed at the time that because the constant shelling, that waves... You know, when the explosion and it waves mm-hmm. out would rattle the soldier's brain and cause irreversible trauma. It's contested today if this was the actual reason. And it's not just the sight of dead bodies and people dying and your friends dying. Because there were some soldiers who said they had it who never were near a bomb. But the majority of them were. So it's so during the war, more and more creases, uh, more cases increased. A good, a good example would be the Battle of the Somme, the bloodiest battle of the whole war. Of all the men who were considered wounded, 40% of them were shell shock victims. They had the shakes. They had the... It was, it was not a good time. But also probably, like, shell shock and physical injuries, probably, too. Oh, yeah. So imagine <laughs> having physical injuries, going home, but also being full P- PTSD. See, shell shock wasn't exactly PTSD though. It was it was a thing on its own, and because you don't have soldiers today who have the shakes like they did, they don't go blind, they don't have what they had, especially on such a grand scale. So, post traumatic stress disorder, they would get it during the event. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's 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 yeah. No, that makes so, sense. So, yeah. So eventually, Army Command went, okay, 
yeah, maybe there's something wrong here. Why are there thousands upon thousands of men freaking the hell out? And so they said, whatever, doctors, you have a free pass. Just do whatever you got to do to get these men fixed and get them back to the battle. So field hospitals are set up for men who were showing mild symptoms. Those who the army considered to be noisy mental cases were sent back to the UK to have special hospitals. At first, the men were treated as insane and declared incurable, and treatment was bare bones. They got a massage, they got bed rest, a milk diet, just relax, you know, have a good time. But over time, they began to experiment a bit. Yeah, the Germans tried barking orders at the men and playing the national anthem so they can be patriotic and want to go fight. Yeah, they want to go fight the war. The French tried electrocution. Uh, yeah, it, all over the place. Uh, different nations had different ways of dealing with the problem. The British, like I said, had field hospitals and main hospitals back in the UK. The French believed the soldiers should be treated as close to the front lines as possible. The Italians... The it- <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm you know where this surprised. is going. <laughs> the Italians believed... That it was due to the soldiers seeing their family and fellow countrymen in distress. So they weren't allowed to go home because it would cause shell shock. And they believed it would weed out the soldiers they don't need. So they had them as close to the front as possible. I'm pretty sure they made them go straight to the front. The Ita- Italians. Fucking it's Italians. the Italians. Are we, if, goddamn Italians. The Russians were actually the smart ones, all right? They had hospitals for treatment ready to go, but the revolution sort of ended that. Womp womp. The Germans had the most German way possible. They had many villages set up with farms and factories so soldiers could distract themselves and the soldiers would work. Essentially, that was their treatment, was work. This was fully paid Very work. German. This wasn't, very, very German. This wasn't slavery. Yeah, this wasn't slavery for the mentally ill. They worked. They had jobs. And that's... Efficiency will cure them. <laughs> the most German way possible. <laughs> so, so after the war, millions of soldiers returned home, limbless, broken, shell-shocked. And these hospitals would actually stay open for decades after. This, this blew my mind because I... I always had the image of shell shock being just in, you know, in the war. But no, mm-hmm. it went on. And there were some hospitals that were still open in the 1960s treating soldiers shell shock. Yeah. Oh, my the God. The 60s. That's, nearly, the that's about 50 years later. World War? or for the First World War. The, oh, first wow. World. Wow. 50 years later, they're still shaking. They're still traumatized. Man. There's some footage I've seen of one soldier. He was deaf. And he would sit there and he would stare blankly at the wall and they would talk to him and they would say words and he wouldn't react to it. And then they would say the word bomb and he would dive under his bed and he would just freak out. He was deaf to everything but the word bomb. Another soldier I saw was terrified of uniforms. They held up a uniform and he was just absolutely lost it. He lost it completely. He just could not bear the sight of it. And it's just, how do you, how do you return from that? How do you recover? You know? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. In the UK alone, 
most so a lot of soldiers didn't recover. That was that was the rest of their life was just, as the British said, noisy mental cases. Uh, Three hundred and six men were shot for cowardice. It isn't clear how many of them were shell shocked, but it was believed most of them were. Mm-hmm. To be fair, there were soldiers who ran away, just because whatever. I it's don't want to do this war. <laughs> It's the war. It's the war. It's. It's strange, though, because back then, patriotism was such a different thing than it is today. People enlisted en masse. You wouldn't see that today. Mm-mm. In any, Probably the biggest comparison would be 9-11. Is, you know, the, oh, we gotta fight. Mm-hmm. So, that is Shellshock. Do you have any questions for this depressing I, topic? I actually do. So, okay. the fact that... I mean, I had no idea that Shellshock was happening on the battlefield. I always had it in my head yeah. that Shellshock and PTSD were the same thing. And that when the soldiers, They're... obviously on the field, they would have their symptoms, but then they'd go home and that's when they'd have the shakes and that's when they'd have other things. But when you think about it, like psychological warfare in term- with sound is not necessarily a new concept. And Mm -hmm. in the First World War, the purpose of artillery wasn't to cause psychological damage. It was obviously to blow shit up. But that being said, like, it was the shockwave. It was the the noise. It was the sound, the constant sound. It's basically like Chinese water torture, where you have a drip of water on your head all the time, all day. It gets to you, you know, the sound, the feeling. it's, It's sensory overload. And, I mean, shell shock makes me think of that. There was one thing I read was the case of one soldier, an officer, and it said this person was the most gallant, brave soldier. He would, he'd be the first in the the line, you know, and then a month later, he was just an absolute wreck, and they didn't know what he was to do with him. Mm -hmm. He was the most bravest, most amazing soldier ever, and then suddenly, overnight, he was, he was gone. They didn't, they couldn't handle him. And they had to get sent back to Britain because he was a noisy mental case. Mm. That's and yeah. it actually affected officers more, percentage-wise. There were fewer, way fewer officers, but more officers in general were affected by PTSD because the men they were leading were dying. Mm. These men are under your protection, and they're being obliterated on mass. Mm-hmm. It was said that just completely random over 100,000 french soldiers were incinerated essentially by uh, yeah by artillery just gone i was watching a wonderful documentary i highly recommend you watch called they shall not grow old and one soldier said he had to put his friend into a sandbag he was just in pieces oh my god what's interesting is how desensitized some of these soldiers became mm-hmm. you know they became friends with a buddy and then the buddy gets his head blown off, and they go, oh, it was that buddy. It's like, how, how, yeah, how, how do you get there? I mean, that probably, I, that has long-term consequences as well on your social behavior, on your ability to interact with society. I mean, yeah. you're in this microcosm of disaster, essentially. Like, obviously, the mm-hmm. world war is happening, but in the trenches, on the front line, in no man's land, you are in this microcosm of just of society, essentially, where, like you said, your friend gets blow, blown up, and you're just kind of like, all right, 
when's when's the next batch coming in when are we switching as if it's nothing because if you let yourself you have to be really good at compartmentalizing because if you let yourself become traumatized by every single soldier that you see die i mean you're gonna have shell shock and more Mm -hmm. yeah you're gone you're and you know, I'm shell shock. Let's say the sh- the shakes, the trembles, the blindness. That I believe comes from the shock wave from artillery, but everything hmm. emotional. I think that is really from repetitive sounds and also seeing people you love get blown up. You know, mm-hmm. and I mean, just this makes me think of just it's general, very different. General yeah. seeing humans get blown up. Mm-hmm. And you know, this yeah. makes me think of something that happened during the vietnam war and Mm -hmm. um it's it's psychological but it's sound warfare essentially and what what happened was the american soldiers would fly over the jungle where they knew vietnamese soldiers were stationed and they would well what they would do is they would have speakers on their airplanes that would project sounds of screaming family members but in vietnamese like screaming women screaming children screaming men um screaming in vietnamese that they are they're they're lost soldiers and they're not able to rest and that it's the ghosts of their families and friends and i mean in the end because the yeah the vietnamese were very spirit i think i've heard the vietnamese were very spiritual and it is interesting yeah and they on they believe that if they were not able to bury their dead, the spirits would come back and essentially beg them to bury them properly using proper proper funerary rituals so that the spirit mm-hmm. can lay to rest. And a lot of the time in the Vietnam War, the family members weren't actually able to bury their families because of explosions, because of being blown to pieces and you have to put your family in a sandbag, essentially. Um, so it's, I mean, that kind of sound, that kind of sound in your ear all the time when you're in the jungle and you're hearing that stuff and it affects you spiritually and it affects you culturally, it it affects you so much worse than anything else would. And I mean, in the First World War, you have explosions that are going off at every second, but you soon come to link the explosions to death, right? You hear an explosion, you go, oh shit, maybe that's one of my friends who got blown up. Oh shit, maybe I'm going to have to go pick up someone off the ground and put them in a bag. Oh no, maybe that's my best friend. Oh no, maybe that's this person. And so it's almost like, the sound gets linked to a negative experience and that's almost what creates the PTSD or the link between that explosion sound and the psychological effects that come with it. It's interesting you brought that up because the very last British soldier alive who fought in the war, he kept the whole thing a secret his whole life. Nobody knew he was in the war. Until he went to a retirement, or just a retirement, a home, and the age of, I think, 100. And he nobody knew he was in the war until one night, the light started flickering in his room. And it all just smacked him right in the face and came back to him. Mm-hmm. And that was it. He can't escape it. He is now known as the... He was one of 26 survivors at the time. And now everybody's flocking to hear his stories, hear his everything. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just all those years later. It's mm-hmm. like you were mentioning with the uniforms as well, like someone being triggered by uniforms, yeah. another person being triggered by just the word bomb. I mean, you know, yeah. a lot of people now in our society use triggers, trigger warning liberally um, and very, yeah. you know, throwing it around here and there. And for sure, some of the times that we do use the word trigger is actually a trigger. But I mean, in this particular case, in the First World War, these are triggers. These are things that essentially throw off the person and throw them off to the Hmm. point that something that they put in amnesia essentially comes to the surface again. And, yeah. There's... More stories keep coming to my head. Is a guy who was a child back during the First World War... And he lived around the corner from one of the the hospitals that were treating cell cell soldiers. And he was walking with his mother and then he laughed or yelled or something. And the mother said, stop it. You can't do that. And he said, why not, mommy? Because those are cell-shocked soldiers. Shell-shocked soldiers. Say that ten times fast. (laughs) They can't. Yeah. Shell-shocked soldiers. They can't react. They can't hear the slightest noise or they will all freak out. Mm -hmm. So they had to build these places way in the country away from everything Mm -hmm. because they would freak out they would absolutely lose their minds how do you send someone back to the war after being cured essentially how do you send them back and how do you expect them to be fine i don't think you can i mean if you do send the soldier back to the war after being quote unquote cured and they still have that trigger in their head i don't think that they would be able to be functional soldiers in the trenches or in the war or anywhere in in the world i mean even in society even walking down the street you hear i don't know a car backfiring and you think that's a bomb going off well goodbye like there goes your cured there goes your six months of countryside cure. So what yeah. do you do with that? And I mean, do you know what kind of cures they were giving shell-shocked, so- shell-shocked soldiers? <laughs> or like other than countryside Honestly, the, and working? That's That was kind of a cure in a way. It was mm-hmm. just so they can have somewhere to relax and just, I don't want to say forget, it's somewhere to feel safe and to mm-hmm. calm down. Mm-hmm. That's... That's all they needed, most of them. Most of them, obviously, that's not how it works. And they would, most of them, a lot of them killed themselves. That's another thing. A very, mm-hmm. Suicide was huge, huge in these places. I'm not surprised. And, yeah, that was that was pretty much it. It's just they needed away from it. Mm-hmm. Which is the, the tents. Remember I mentioned the for people who had mild cases, they would yeah. stay in the, they would stay behind the war, but they would be safe, essentially. And that's all they needed was somewhere to relax, feel safe, knowing their friends are not going to die around them. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there is a huge answer for that, but I'm not a doctor. So. Well, I know that, um, I think I read at some point that Sigmund Freud actually did experiments on shell shock uh, and shell shocked soldiers, hmm. but I can't particularly remember exactly what he said in that particular article. I would recommend checking that out though because Hmm. i remember him it was very controversial and he was doing a lot of really sketchy experiments as freud commonly did but yeah that that would be actually interesting to check out speaking of freud it's it's imagine being a doctor back then though Mm -hmm. imagine 
hearing the stories of all these people. You just want to get in there and you want to poke and pick and you want to experiment. That's exactly what happened is every doctor who could got there to find the cure. They wanted to be the hero that cured shell shock as as it is, you know. Yeah, and I think that is also a very unethical way of going about things. I mean, back in the day, back during the First World War, medicine was special, to say the least. Uh, Especially with all that is quackery and all that is people, you know, ethics boards not existing. People kind of just did whatever they wanted and it was accepted. So I can only imagine all these soldiers who were going through shell shock and they were getting poked and prodded and all they wanted was peace and quiet and to just calm their nerves. And the doctors would be swooping in like, I need to do electro testing and water therapy and this and that and this therapy and that therapy and let's see what works. And in the end, like all they needed is just some calm time and to be away from their triggers and be away from the war, essentially. Because like you were mentioning to me earlier today, people in London, in London, the city could hear the war happening. And like the war wasn't that close to London, you know, it was happening, but it was like not in the city. So Uh you can imagine, you can imagine how dramatic it must be for them. There was a case in 1916, a French soldier was being experimented on by a French doctor and the doctor was doing electric therapy on him and the patient punched the doctor across the face. Good for him. And he got court-martialed. Uh, he got court-martialed. Well, I think he got, he got arrested for it, charged. And it turns out the doctor put so much electricity through him at one time, it could have moved a streetcar. Oh my God. And he said, I would rather be court-martialed than go through with this anymore yeah. to let that doctor near me. But I mean, And back- so it became a question. It became a question of, are these soldiers, should they be treated as soldiers or treated as civilians? Mm-hmm. What right do they have? So. What were the different options be- of rights? I mean, how is a soldier treated differently than a civilian? Well, uh, essentially, civilians could get better slower essentially mm-hmm. and soldiers were essentially ordered to get better in a way okay. so that they you know could go I mean? back to the front lines yeah to get sent back to the front okay. yeah that makes sense so. oh that's so awful though but even then you know i think the fact that the climate was very much a climate the uh, medical climate was very much a climate of experimentation at the time and nobody really mm-hmm was doing anything ethically imagine how much more amped up the treatments were on soldiers especially because there was this need for the soldiers to get better quickly um so because there was electrotherapy but there was also hydroshock therapy which was very cold bath very hot bath very cold bath very hot bath while you're naked and try to figure that out (laughs) and like also i mean electric shock therapy as we know they had i mean essentially torture torture methods to treat um psychological cases and anything that is mental health so imagine people who are already in a state that their mental health is not doing too well and then you have all of this these traumatic events and i mean if they didn't have 
shell shock and PTSD before, well, they're going to have it now. Yeah, essentially. And another problem is it was very, very easy to fake. Shell you shock? You out of there. Yeah. Damn, it's very okay. easy to fake. Yeah. Just don't respond to anybody. Shake a little bit. I mean, it's not hard to shake a little bit. And you need a couple of more rest days? Well, oh, no, I got shell shock. Take me out of here. Mm. So how do you tell the fakes from... Yeah. I don't know that answer. How do you tell the fakes from the real ones? It's another problem is the army thought a lot of them were faking it a lot more than they thought. Like, We're actually real. It was... Yeah. It's kind of remarkable when you really think about it is in 1914, men were being shot for it. While in 1917, only three years later, men who had mild symptoms were sent off to be treated. Just the contrast. The huge difference between the two it's mm-hmm. it's remarkable it just shows how quickly that war changed mm-hmm. it's 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 incredibly remarkable it's it's not the same war every year it was a different war mm-hmm. well i mean just the fact so. that they started with horses and bayonets and they ended up with yes, full-sized artillery and tanks tanks did yeah, they have artillery, tanks? Uh, they had tanks tanks yeah they, had, they tanks. have tanks okay, 1916 okay. I knew it. I was like, yeah, I tanks. knew they had tanks. It made me question myself there. You looked at me like there weren't <laughs> tanks. <laughs> I looked at you because you were asking that question. I'm like, you don't know that? I was like, yes, I do. Those tanks. Tanks were invented. Exactly. I could get on a whole... Oh, that's that's a whole other topic for another Ooh, day. A can of tanks worms. in the First World War. A whole tank of worms. Oh, wow. That's a better one oh, that wow. I approve of. Wow. 10 out of 10. I think we should end this on a lighter note. Ooh, do you want to know what I learned? Like three days what ago. Did you learn? <laughs> so, oh, no, what did you learn? So I was falling asleep. And then as I was falling asleep, I woke up with a start. I was like, whoa, oh my gosh. You know what I thought of? I thought what? the question in my head was I wonder why goats have rectangular pupils. Did you ever notice that goats have rectangular pupils? I don't spend my days staring at goats in the face. So, well. No. Fun fact, goats have rectangular pupils. <laughs> so it was three o'clock okay. in the morning and I woke up and I picked up my phone and I checked why goats had rectangular pupils. And do you want to know why? Well, they have rectangular pupils because they are prey animals. And because they are prey animals, they need to see when the wolves are coming. So the fact that they have long pupils lets them see more periphery around them. So they don't have to turn their heads as much to be able to see if someone's coming to attack them also in the nighttime it allows more light to come into their eyeballs so they can see just as well in the daytime as the nighttime so that is your fun fact about goats for the day to end our podcast on a very light note hooray if ever if ever you wanted to know why next time i'm walking down the street and a goat happens by i will ask politely to look into its eyes (laughs) oh wow it's probably gonna look at you and be like nah (laughs) (laughs) literally (laughs) unintended <laughs> it's gonna look at me it's gonna look at me and just go human it's not gonna talk back to me i can look at his eyes all i want i don't know i don't need to ask this and god i was like you're gonna ask the goat's permission you're gonna stop it on the street and what? go excuse me sir may i look into your eyes please <laughs> no oh i refuse find another okay. goat i will find another goat sir as you walk away crying, <laughs> I was rejected by a goat. <laughs> the images. All right. So I think we will leave. I will leave that 
image of you crying as you're walking away from a goat who has rejected you in your head. All right. We'll see you all next week. All right. Bye. Bye. Goodbye.